Animal Magnetism, exploring animal care for creatures great and small, conservation and preservation in today's world. Find out what a single voice can do to make a difference in the lives of animals. Animal Magnetism with Carolyn Hennessy starts right now on UVN Radio. Just love the sound of applause. We just live for it. It's as simple as that. Tony, we've got to redo that intro because, and boy, this this show will certainly tell the tale. It is not a single voice. It is the combined voices of many, 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 many people, and I'm simply the conduit for those voices. Welcome, listeners, once again to this episode of Animal Magnetism. Uh, this this episode, maybe this show, should just be titled "My Love Affair with SeaWorld." <laughs> Because that's, uh, that's, that's what this show is. And uh, just, we've got, we've, got, we've got amazing guests. I am joined once again by my, I guess he was a temporary co-host, and now he's just a co-host, period. <laughs> my, my alpha and omega, my, my wonderful animal, animal advocacy mentor, Dr. Gray Stafford. Welcome. Thank you, as always. It's always fun to be with you, and uh, I'm looking forward to today's conversation. Yes. So, as 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 am I. It's it's in, it's in, it's the issues are complex, but hopefully we can simplify, and uh, and I won't look like too much of a you know nascent individual. Um, again, my love affair with SeaWorld, as as those who have been with the show, who have watched it for for years, know about. I guess about four or five years ago now. Um, my other co-host, Andrea Compton, and one and one of the producers of the show, who is on a plane somewhere. Ever since she moved to Seattle uh, for kind of a rest, her life has been nothing but exciting. So Andrea's on a plane somewhere. So she's not with us today. But Andrea and I went down to SeaWorld about four or five years ago and did a four-part homage. Really uh, to showcase the incredible work that is being done yes it is a it's an entertainment it's an amusement park of sorts it's but but behind all of that behind the fact that it's a publicly traded company who has to report to shareholders fine behind all of that the real foundation of SeaWorld is the animal advocacy that is demonstrated every single day by the SeaWorld organizations, the SeaWorld uh, amusement parks across the country. And, and these, the programs, the conservation and preservation programs that SeaWorld is, is, uh, is involved with, you know, are, are, are sometimes international in scope. So let's get to it because we have Dr. Heinrich Nolens, who is Vice President of Animal Health and Welfare, SeaWorld and Bush Garden Parks, as Vice President of Animal Health and Welfare for SeaWorld and Bush Garden Parks, Dr. Heinrich Nolens is responsible for the health, safety, and well-being of approximately 75,000 animals, including mammals, birds, fish, invertebrates, reptiles, and amphibians. Dr. Nolens oversees a team of 14 veterinarians at the three SeaWorld parks, San Diego, San Antonio, and Orlando, and the Bush Gardens Park in Tampa, Florida. Now, this, I think, this next sentence in your bio... Dr. Nolans, is really going to be the theme of this show. It just struck me. Owned and operated by SeaWorld Parks and Entertainment, fine. SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Parks are among the world's foremost zoological organizations and are global leaders in animal welfare, behavioral training, husbandry, and veterinary care. That's just the truth. That's just the fact. That's the bottom line. Foremost. So welcome, to, welcome Dr. Nolans. Nice to be here. Thank you. And another fabulous get for the show for this morning, Dr. Christopher Dold, Chief Zoological Officer, Dr. Chris, Christopher Chris, and that's how that's really what we're going to do. And and uh, and hi, H- Hendrick, do you mind if I just kind of slide into Hendrick every once in a while? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay, please okay do. that's good. Dr. Christopher Chris Dold has served as the Chief Zoological Officer of the company since April 2016. In his role, Chris leads the company's team of zoological professionals and oversees all animal programs, rescue and rehabilitation, science, conservation, and, and education. And you've been with the company since 2005. The list of <clears throat> associations, <clears throat> organizations that both of you belong to is, would take the entire show to list. So let's just say you, you, both, you both is qualified. So there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Chris, for being with us. 
Carolyn. It's a real pleasure and, and honor. Well, no, please, please, please. The honor is mine. Let me just get to It's been so many. It's been years, I think, Tony. Tony Sweet, the handsomest man in radio, is, <laughs> is, is, is engineering this show. And uh, it's been years, I think, since I've had papers spread in front of me. I usually sort of wing it. And maybe those who have listened to the show can tell that. But uh, this is, I've got many, many papers in front of me because, again, the issues are very, very uh, complex. So let's start with SeaWorld's Animal Rescue and Rehabilitation Program, something that I'm going to be actually involved with uh, July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd when I come down and, and I believe I am helping to release animals that have been rescued rehabilitated and now need to be returned to their animal to their to their wild environment because i just want to dispel a myth in case anyone st still thinks that this is true SeaWorld takes nothing from the wild nothing from the wild unless it is to rescue it make rehabilitate it make it well again and make it able to thrive and survive survive and thrive in its in its natural environment. So let's just be real clear about that. SeaWorld takes and then returns healthier animals to the wild. Over the last five decades, SeaWorld has come to the aid of more than 34, no, wait a minute, I think we just hit the 35,000 mark of wild animals in need, including those that are ill, injured, orphaned, or abandoned. SeaWorld's goal, goal for every rescued animal is to rehabilitate and then return them to their national ocean environment. Doctors, though, you would, I, th I think there's one small caveat to that, and that is if they have been abandoned or orphaned and, and they, will, they will not survive in the wild, then we, we keep them and give them a forever home. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, yeah that, this is Chris. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that, 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 is, that is correct. Um, we we stand ready to provide homes for animals that cannot be released, and, and and all of this work that we're proud to do, of course, is is an effort in partnership. So SeaWorld is honored because we have the resources and the skill in our people, in large part, uh, to uh, safely respond to animals in need, particularly marine animals in need. Um, we 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 do as much as we possibly can, but a lot of the decision-making, the ultimate decision-making for the final um, landing space for those animals. As we say, hopefully it's in the wild, but there are cases where, that's, where, that, where that just simply can't happen because of the, because of the animals, uh, whatever's going on with the animal. Maybe it's age, maybe it's disease process, maybe some other problem that we identify with it. Um, but those ultimate decisions are made in concert with and under the guidance of the governing authorities who permit us to do the work in the first place. And that varies by species, but um, for most of the marine species we're working with, that's with um, uh, NOAA Fisheries, uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and their um, uh, Marine Mammal Stranding Response and Health Network, uh, which, which of course is based in DC, but spread all around the country, uh, wherever there's coastline. Um, so in San Diego and Florida, we're working closely with our colleagues in, in NOAA, as well as the, the state uh, governing authorities to make the final determination for those animals. So it's a complicated process with all the animals that we respond to, but you hit the nail on the head. Our goal uh, is to return each of those animals. When they present to us, the default plan is to return that animal back out into the wild. Uh, and then in the very rare occasion that one can't, um, we're always willing to provide a lifelong home and or participate in the process to find a home elsewhere if SeaWorld isn't the right place. You know, it's, 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 it's cyclical. No, it's not cyclical. It's, 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 sort of a, it's sort of a closed circle because I, 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 I really want to reiterate again, and I may, may do it again in the show, that, that yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a bit of flash to SeaWorld. And, and we've got the dolphins and the orcas and people can come and look and, and interact and wave and, you know, get a, get a wonderful, you know, kind of full-bodied sense of these animals. But that money, a tremendous portion of that, that ticket price and, and concessions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, any, any, any dollars that are spent at SeaWorld amusement parks, a tremendous portion of that dollar goes into 
I mean, what you've got here in terms of rehabilitation, a critical care unit with built-in, with a built-in weighing scale, medical facilities, laboratories, the latest diagnostic equipment, surgical suites, a food prep room where special diets for rehabilitated or re rehabilitating animals are, are prepared, an examination room, um, rescue boats with unsinkable hulls. I didn't know there was something like that. You know, yay, yay, Titanic. Large dive doors and the state-of-the-art navigation technology, recovery areas, pools, enclosures. A large part of that, of that dollar that's spent at SeaWorld goes into main, buying, maintaining, and using all of this, hiring the individuals that are going to, that are going to go out and, and, and rescue these. I mean, it's pup season now down there, which means it's also stranding season because of certain certain factors that we we can we can get into uh and so hiring the people that are go out and get, that are going to pilot these rescue boats the the veterinarians that are in charge of rehabilitating these animals that's really the found the, the foundation of SeaWorld. it's fun to go and visit but if you're lucky enough to get a behind the scenes tour what you see is almost more massive than the actual park itself wouldn't you agree you know, this this is Hendrik. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> we, uh, you know, we, we when we treat these animals, the, the wild and rescued animals, we hold ourselves to the same standard of care and and medicine and, and husbandry as we do for the animals that permanently uh, reside here. And uh, uh, but we also have to you know, keep biosecurity in mind, right? We, we need to protect our our own animals from infectious disease and yes. anything that may come in with these wild animals. So we effectively have to duplicate our. Uh, a lot of our operation, which is a which is a big endeavor. Now, and, you know, you, and you pointed out earlier, SeaWorld is slightly different from the typical marine mammal or, or stranding network members or wildlife network members in that we are a you know we're, we're a publicly traded company and we're a corporation instead of a uh, more typical nonprofit who does this sort of work. But it, it actually turns out that uh, it is a, a it is a, a strong point for the stranding network for the wildlife rescue community because, for example, a few years ago when we were literally inundated here in, in waves of sea lion pups that were coming up on the beach in right. I believe it was 2015. We, we uh, responded to over a thousand sea lions in one year. And uh, uh, having a, uh, a for-profit, a, a private corporation in the network really uh, provided, uh, we, we were a cornerstone for the network because uh, our background was different. We did have this search capacity. We can bring in more employees. We can free up more pools, which we did. And then also, you know, when funding became tight, we were able to help support the other facilities up and down the coast. So right. it's uh, we're a very unique member, but it actually adds to the to the strength of the network. Absolutely true. That is one of the benefits of being of being a a, a part of a of a, of a large corporation with with spendable with spendable dollars. Uh, that's that's that that's wonderful. But you know, you mentioned the fact that SeaWorld is not a 501c3. It's not a not-for-profit or non-profit organization. And, and well, it's, it's, but there's, but there's a 501c3 uh, kind of arm attached to it, and that is the SeaWorld and Bush Gardens Conservation Fund. So let's talk about that. Oh, that the Conservation Fund established in 2003 as a 501c3 non-profit private foundation that supports grassroots conservation pro projects that are truly making a difference. So again, this is where SeaWorld extends itself and has donated, uh, since its creation, the Conservation Fund has awarded more than $17 million in grants to more than 1,000 organizations around the world. Currently, the fund provides more than $1 million each year to conservation programs. So let's talk about some of those conservation programs, these grassroots efforts that SeaWorld has recognized. How does one, how does one apply, I guess? Uh, you know, what, what can I do? <laughs> I want part of that. <laughs> well, I don't know what you can do, but uh, the, the one of the things that's unique about the, the SeaWorld's conservation fund is, or the SeaWorld Bush Gardens conservation fund is the uh, simplicity of an application. The, the, the fund was really developed and its scope, uh, you know, to date has been the uh, small grassroots organizations, people who don't necessarily have um, a, a big uh, administration, and and but are trying to do good work. And um, so, a lot of these projects are have been smaller groups, uh, but it, it it adds up over the years, right? Seventeen million. The um, in in uh, when we break down the seventeen million, it turns out that. Just over five million of that has gone to actual um, species preservation work, so actual pre species preservation research. Um, three and a half million to animal rescue and rehab uh, across the world, which is um, 
very much in line with 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 who we are, right? Um, and then importantly, another 3.2 or so million has gone to conservation education. We all know that uh, raising awareness and, and just explaining people uh, what the problems are is, is a big part of the conservation challenge. And uh, um, so we, we co- conservation education is important to us, not just through the fund, but also in our in our parks. And then another solid two and a half million has gone to habitat protection. Uh, you know, uh, habitat loss, habitat disturbance, um, some really neat work that has happened to over a thousand different uh, locations across the planet. I will be applying for a grant because I think that SeaWorld needs to sponsor a radio program. And and by the way, this can become the Sea Out the Sea World, uh, you know, podcast hour of power. I'm just saying that that's that's exactly what this can this can be that fine, absolutely fine. Because there I, in 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 ten years, I I probably couldn't get through with an hour every two weeks, everything that you guys do. Um, what are some of the more, um, I, I guess I want to say, um, dire and conse- I mean, con- of, of consequence um, programs that you have, that SeaWorld has actually um, gr- given grants to? Anyway. Um, uh, go ahead, Hendrick, Ta- tackle no, no, a couple. Okay, and I'll, I've got a couple to share. Okay. The, uh, when you say dire, you know the one, the first one that comes to mind to, to me is of course the Vaquita project, uh, the, or the, the the effort to recover the Vaquita because, uh, maybe in part because I was uh, personally there, but also the uh, 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 you know because things are so dire for that species. That's that's the uh, the first one that comes to mind. But you know, uh, actually, the uh, what is what is nice is is that uh, conservation doesn't always have to be doom and gloom and actually a lot of these projects are right. success stories we're getting locals involved and uh, uh, snare removal you know and a lot of times you don't see the impact because you've removed the impact <laughs> and yeah. Uh, so yeah there are, there are many success stories too yeah, well, I would add the the, the the fund categories the funding categories that Hendrick described uh, that are part of the conservation fund are really a reflection of uh, you know the legs of the table that are required uh, in in our world today to move to, to make meaningful impact when it comes to conservation. So we we look for things to fund projects to fund uh, that um, are growing, as Hendrick described, but also ones that are uh, mutually funded by other organizations. So there's there's been a lot of focus here, uh, particularly recently, much much needed focus. Uh, on the plight of the North Atlantic right whale. Uh, uh, they are uh, an endangered species to begin with. Uh, they are a species of whale that is um, not uniquely, but darn close to uniquely uh, American in that they, they swim up and down the east coast of the United States. Uh, they make their way down into Florida in the winter, and they're up uh, off uh, the northeast coast of the U.S. and up into Canada in the, in the summer months. And that has those animals swimming direct, directly through uh, uh, prime fishing grounds and lobstering gr- grounds and otherwise. And so they end up being highly entangled. And an entangled great whale uh, is an imperiled animal. And they estimate that most of the population, the remaining population of the North Atlantic right whales, have been, each individual, majority of them, have been entangled at one point in their lives. And so... Uh, it turns out that the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund has been supporting projects to both understand and to try to reconcile that problem now for many, many years. Uh, and then currently, uh, and parallel, SeaWorld as uh, our rescue program uh, has developed expertise uh, and um, has, again, resources and personnel um, and a concerted effort to help with large whale disentanglement um, certainly on, on the West Coast and increasingly on the East Coast. Um, so we're able to both offer philanthropic funding support for an initiative around a critically endangered, in this case, great whale, um, and then also provide through SeaWorld uh, um, some of our professional support to try to ameliorate the problem if possible. And then last but not least, that education component is critical not just in our parks and affecting conservation by teaching the next generation of animal enthusiasts, animal lovers, and, and hopefully conservation uh, effectors as, as, as families, as kids come in and are inspired in our parks and grow up and, and want to do something on behalf of this beautiful planet that we, that we share with these beautiful animals. 
Um, we can similarly drive conservation education through the Conservation Fund by supporting other educational programs that are not based at SeaWorld but are based either in country or in the field. Um, and so we're able to offer funding support for International Fund for Animal Welfare and other organizations that are doing a great job of teaching people about animals like the North Atlantic white whale. So you, we, we are lucky to be able to have and privileged, I should say, to be able to um, offer full circle support on some of these projects, like North, North Atlantic White Whale, the key is another one, as Hendrik just mentioned. Um, and then the last thing I'll say is the fund lets us expand our support beyond where we live. Uh, um, uh, the, the, net, the, number, the greatest number of programs that have been funded through the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund are terrestrial-based, and a lot of them are in Africa. So um, we're talking about elephants and rhinos um, and other critically endangered species. And the SeaWorld Bush Gardens Conservation Fund has been able to help support the conservation of those those guys as well. It's just amazing. And, and yes, you are absolutely right. It's <laughs> I somehow th I, 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 I despair that this generation uh, and the past generation are lost. But it's the it's the next generation, the next several generations that, is, that I think are really going to tell the tale. And the more we get the word out about about saving this planet and and preserving the species that we still have, I think, I think we've got a shot. Now, I, I did not even know that there was a North American right whale, an NARW. But, Dr. Nolans, you co-authored an op-ed that appeared in The Hill, which is an influ influential political newspaper and website in Washington, D.C. So let's just sort of extrapolate on, on that and talk about... I, I mean, I, am, I love the fact that you guys are... that, that SeaWorld is... is very proactive in terms of fishermen and, and, and net netting and and raising awareness and et cetera. But let's talk about the people that could really make a difference and those are the politicians, local, state, federal government politicians that can that can regulate fishing in terms of and and, and netting and things like that. How are we doing with changing the hearts and minds and policies of local state and, and federal governments with regard to protecting certain species while not denying someone to someone else making a living. How are we doing with that? The, um, uh, the, 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 well, I'm glad you bring it up, actually. So in, in, in addition to what uh, Chris pointed out about the, the work that we have supported in the past uh, through the uh, Seawood Bush Gardens Conservation Fund, we're actually also exploring into how we uh, can make a, a substantial, more substantial bite uh, into uh, entanglement prevention, developing of, uh, of smart gear, and so that would be, you know, a, a financially supporting uh, one, two, or three uh, researchers who are active in this area. But it's not just about uh, a place an organization like SeaWorld can can provide more than just uh, dollar amounts, and and right. and and a lot of times it's other things that are much more valuable. We have a, a tremendous. Uh, messaging platform. You know, we have so many millions of people come through our parks every year, and even just telling them that there is such a thing as the North Atlantic right whale, like you just pointed out, is is uh, how key is that to uh, preserving the species, right? Just for people to know that it exists. Uh, so th that is a, a, a tremendous resource we bring to the table. Um, yes, you're right. There currently is a we, we do support legislation on this topic. There currently is a uh, act in Congress is called the Save the Right Whale Act. Um, we have uh, publicly taken a position, taken a position in support of that uh, bill. It still needs to be voted on. Um, we have uh, reached out through to and through our local politicians to support this bill. Uh, we we published the uh, opinion piece and with a co-author, uh, Dr. Michael Moore from Woods Hole Oceanographic. Um, uh, so I, just trying to raise awareness and, and, and uh, for, people to, for people to know. We also try to educate the guests outside our parks. For example, on, on this specific topic, there's a, every year in Jacksonville, Florida, there's an, a, a right whale festival. It's a, it's a festival that is put on by uh, local groups to just raise awareness around the species. Um, we also, did, so this year, we sent a team of uh, our people there with ambassador animals. And uh, uh, just giving it more visibility, invited the local politicians to to um, to to get the awareness. And and then, as Chris pointed out, a lot of times technical expertise, um, 
we, we provide veterinary input on, for example, um, one of the things that's being explored for this species is how to sedate, how to provide sedation, so sedatives, tranquilizers, to uh, free-swimming whales, how to do that safely, because um, uh, that could be used for then disentangling whales, which would make it safer, hopefully, for the whale and for the people, because this is a very dangerous Yeah, that's brilliant, um, brilliant. Position to put yourself in. So there, there's really, uh, uh, we take a very, very much take a multi-pronged approach to uh, to this problem, and and that way, you know, the dollar amounts that go towards whether it's entanglement response, disentanglement response, or entanglement prevention, which is really would solve the problem, right? If we get much more leverage for any uh, uh, financial support. Well, as and, and you're absolutely right. What we don't know about, we don't necessarily care about. Um, we can care about it in the abstract, I'm, I'm sure, like the planet but and animals. But, uh, you know, I didn't know that there was a North American right whale, and now I care about it. And, Gray, you and I have this – is, this is how we started. You know, when people know, people bond, and then people care. And, uh, and that's, I think, one of the first lessons that Gray taught me, right? Well, I think you taught me the importance of um, <laughs> being open-minded. And I'm struck by the comments that all three of you have made so far, which is uh, here you have a, essentially a zoological organization spread out over the U.S. and elsewhere, helping animals in the wild in some way, shape, or fashion. And yet, at this point in our history, in the zoological history, uh, there's this public sentiment building, at least in some circles, where we don't need zoos. We don't need aquariums. We, we know all this already. Uh, there's nothing more to be gained by having these types of facilities because we've done it for so long. We understand how to take care of dolphins and whales and so forth. And I think the message that is coming out clearly today is there's so much more we don't know. And I guess I would ask both Chris and Hendrik, you know, what is your take on that? We're, we're under siege for, for existing at a time when it seems like you're being called upon to do far more than you ever thought would be possible, probably when you started this career. Yeah, well, uh, I, this is Chris, I, I, that is a key component of some of the challenge that we see in the world today. I think everyone on the call is, is very aware of uh, fortunately the very highly publicized uh, results uh, of a, a, a special working group uh, through the United Nations to look at uh, biodiversity preservation efforts around the world. Uh, and uh, the report that came out, I think about three or four weeks ago now is uh, that it was, was very, very uh, uh, Sad, candidly. I mean, it, it was saying we've got populations that are that are under threat everywhere, uh, and uh, they were saying if if you think that uh, global climate change is a big problem, let's talk about this mass extinction that we find ourselves in right now, uh, and the significant loss of biodiversity. So it's it is it is not an exaggeration to say that every resource that humanity can bring forward on behalf of um, the animals that we share this planet with uh, to prevent their extinction uh, of insects um, and certainly, you know, plants. <laughs> this, is, this is a biodiversity crisis, not limited to just to the animals of the world, uh, but to entire ecosystems, um, all the way up to uh, the majestic animals that we're so, we're so proud to have within our parks like killer whales. Um, that we are in crisis mode right now, and uh, and sa and sadly, there is way more that we don't know about all the animals that we share this planet with than there is that we know. And so, in in that spirit, that every resource is needed right now, zoos and aquariums play a critical role. They are the other side of of the uh, conservation research, conservation understanding, management decision making coin. Uh, that we all use and those coins that we use, the currency of biodiversity preservation. And so zoos and aquariums, these places that house animals and have uh, a brilliant way of connecting those incredible animals with the guests that come into our, into our parks, um, also house tremendous living laboratories and opportunities for uh, ex situ that's out of out of the out of the wild uh, um, conservation research 
science, cutting-edge science, uh, which is a whole show. We could spend two or three shows just talking about cutting-edge science that's being done, hopefully, you know, certainly at SeaWorld, but also at other zoos and aquariums around the world, um, where we are able to uh, have uh, very uniquely um, constructed research programs that allow us to study and understand the animals that we house within the parks. That then complements uh, the great science and conservation research that's done with uh, those animals' free-ranging counterparts. Or we can do surrogacy science, right? We can study animals uh, that uh, serve as proxies for other species that are not housed as zoo in zoos and aquariums. And so it, uh, um, without dwelling on the negative here, which is that uh, zoos and aquariums don't get a free pass, and uh, there are a lot of folks who have concerns about whether or not zoos and aquariums should even exist, um, uh, the truth of the matter is we need more of them. They need to be run, well run, uh, and we all need to have our eyes focused on the prize, which is preventing extinction and good solid conservation ultimately. Um, but, uh, no, we, we have a lot more to learn, and we have a lot less time in which to do it. So zoos and aquariums are critically important today. I was just so hoping that the, the mass extinction would apply to people. I was really hoping that. <laughs> it just sounds so awful to say, but... It's the truth. I was. That was just me. Um, but you talk about you talk about science and research being applied perhaps to um, one one sample of a, of a particular population and in in terms of, of gaining information about the entire population. And that's a brilliant segue to the J50 response and southern resident killer whale recovery. And and the the information on that is 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 extraordinary and a lot of it's very very scientific so let's just let's talk about this one particular whale j50 which was a part of the j pod in the pacific northwest 2018 and and the uh, the southern resident killer whales and why you studied this one particular animal and well listen SeaWorld and more than a dozen governmental agencies, aquariums, universities, native tribes, and other organizations from both the United States and Canada were members of a NOAA Fisheries-led response team focused on an emaciated killer whale, J-50, from the J-Pod in the Pacific Northwest in 2018. It, this was, and this, and this, this, how did, how did we find her? Um, what did we do for her? And what was the ultimate result for her? And then what was the ultimate result with regard to the knowledge that was gained with regard to this, this, this resident population? Uh, boy, that's a, that, that's a long story. There's a lot of work and a lot of history that, that uh, led up to uh, J50's story and, and uh, not to ruin the ending here, but eventually her demise. Um, the, um, some years ago, um, a, uh, a, a local veterinarian, a veterinarian biologist, Dr. Joe Gatos, who uh, lives in the San Juan Islands, uh, started convening uh, workshops on uh, killer whale health assessments geared towards, you know, wild killer whale health assessments. What do we know about the health of these, uh, this particular population, or the whales that the killer whales that are part of this particular population of uh, killer whales? The southern resident killer whales are. Uh, typically inhabitants of the Salish Sea in winter, they go. They also go sort of the, into the uh, offshore, more open waters. But they are uh, the most urban, I guess, killer whale of, uh, of, of of all killer whales because they sometimes can can be seen all the way in Seattle. Um, and uh, some some years ago, uh, Dr. Gato started pulling together these workshops with subject matter experts and. Uh, which included veterinarians and pathologists from uh, SeaWorld. Uh, the other people in the room were everybody who had uh, anything to add uh, science-wise or knowledge-wise or skill-wise to these animals. So a lot of local biologists, uh, NGOs, university researchers, um, endocrinologists, anybody who actually was working on these animals uh, would, would come to, you know, at some point came to one of these, uh, these workshops. So that sort of set the, 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 the tone and the team. So this population of whales is in trouble. It's been declining since the mid 90s. It, uh, last year it was at its all-time low of 74 individuals. Uh, luckily, so far uh, we know of two calves having been born. Uh, so uh, hopefully we're up at uh, 76 again. We'll, we'll, we'll know this summer. Uh, but a lot of questions being asked about the health. 
Uh, and then last year, uh, against all that background, um, certainly the report, the, the biologists who do the photo ID and a lot of the behavioral observations on these whales uh, reported that uh, J50 was a uh, was very thin, very poor body condition. J50 was a, um, of course, there's the individual animal component of this animal being sick and ailing and uh, apparently starving, um, and all the, the, the welfare and, and, and veterinary concerns that come with that. But then J50 was also special in the sense that she was a four-year-old female, and so she had her entire reproductive life in, in, in front of her. You know, she could have had four or five uh, calves and really be a contributor to the population recovery. We all know uh, in, for conservation, we don't need a lot of boys, right? We need a lot of girls. They, they are the limiting factor. So she was a tremendously valuable individual in this, um, in this population because recruitment has been a big uh, challenge. That triggered uh, NOAA to uh, start coordinating a, really uh, looking into how we could respond to a wild killer whale like this. Uh, this had uh, not been done before. There were some exceptions, but they were, you know, like Springer and, and, and so on in the past, but those are very unique cases. This was a, you know, free-swimming, uh, unconditioned, uh, untrained uh, killer whale who was swimming with her pod. Um, so there were a lot of unique challenges here. Uh, this big conundrum for, for, for NOAA on, on, you know, what, whether to do something, how to do something, and make sure that the benefits outweigh the risks and so on. Um, ultimately, we uh, did do, uh, uh, we, we never got a, our hands on J50. Uh, we weren't able to do an actual true veterinary health assessment, but between our combined expertise, we, we knew that uh, uh, she was likely to suffer from, you know, certain um, problems such as pneumonia, whether it's primary, primary or, or secondary. And uh, based on those, uh, we, we did, um, based on those experiences, most of them actually from here, uh, we, we here at SeaWorld, we uh, delivered, did do remote treatment uh, via DART. We delivered her two medications, but uh, she continued to lose weight and uh, eventually uh, disappeared in September of last summer. Then for the next two or three days, um, uh, we were up in with boats and uh, helicopters and airplanes trying to find her carcass to even just get a, a diagnosis, right, a cause of death, but we were never able to find her uh, wow. her body to perform a necropsy. Now, the, the efforts to rescue J50 uh, maybe failed, but I do think that this project had a, a, a tremendous amount was accomplished. You know, first of all, the right. team, like you listed, NGOs, universities, just getting all these people to work together. And it's amazing what we can pull off when we, when we do work together. And also this was a positive experience, I think, for, for most. And so uh, if this year it is another calf, another uh, valuable animal, conservation point valuable animal, uh, shows up emaciated, hopefully we are um, 10 steps ahead of where we were last year. So J50 ultimately served a much larger and greater purpose. Uh, even in death, which yeah. is which is which is all that anyone can hope for. But what you did for this animal was extraordinary. Uh, diagnostic observations, a fish delivery trial was was attempted using Chinook salmon, which is the preferred the preferred prey of 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 killer whales. Um, but she she did not eat. Um, you tried getting blow samples and fecal samples. I mean. The, the 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 lengths that everybody went to for this one particular animal and and there again it's and I, I love the fact that you were able to determine that she was emaciated not only by the rest of her pod but but by looking at the healthy animals that are at SeaWorld <laughs> and it's like well this is what we've got in human care and she and she's in the wild and yes of course so you know we all we all know that animals do live longer in human care than in the wild for, for most species, for a lot of species, actually. Um, go ahead. And since you mentioned, uh, you know, the blow and, and feces, so that was actually, you know, there are a tremendous amount of challenges that come with diagnosing a wild animal that you cannot touch, right? <laughs> that you cannot uh, actually get physically uh, get your hands on uh, as, as a veterinarian. And so we uh, were able, the biologists were able uh, to uh, collect fecal samples uh, from from her pod. Uh, this is using sniffer dogs that are trained to uh, 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 track down whale poop 
uh, those uh, feces came here to our lab here at Seal San Diego, and we, we uh, uh, analyzed them just like we would for our whales. We were able to get uh, blow samples, or uh, the vapor actually gets caught onto a petri dish, and then we analyze it as if we would for our whales here. A lot of these things are, and, and, and uh, what I wanted to add is that a lot of these things have actually now led to research projects that we are currently doing on our whales. Um, for example, we, to myself or, 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 or Chris as a veterinarian, we don't have to use a fecal sample or we don't have to use a blow sample to assess how our animals are doing because we can get a blood sample, right? Why would we bother with getting something that is, is, is so much less diagnostic? But uh, so what we're doing now is we, we are routinely now sampling uh, blow, the, the exhalate, the vapor that, that comes out of the blowhole when, when they exhale. And uh, we're analyzing this for literally everything that is in it. We're looking at what are all the molecules, what are all the proteins that are in, the, in this vapor. And then we are trying to see if one of them correlates with uh, health. And um, uh, this is going to be an ongoing project. It's going to be a long project. Um, but it's going to be one that, if it works, would be tremendously valuable for uh, responding and managing wild whales. There again, taking, taking information gleaned from research done on, on, on killer whales or any animal in human care and then transposing it into the wild and seeing how we can. Because, you know, as, as I've said so many times on this show, as, you know, 98% of the animals that live in the ocean are 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 concentrated in a you know three to five mile strip around every every body of land, and we're just turning yeah. it into. Uh, uh, in, go ahead. I was going to say, and 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 so they they all they all they end end up being highly impacted by the decisions. Of course, the, the decisions that we make. Mm-hmm. I, I was going to add that that so we have this uh, care continuum philosophy. Um, within the zoo community, certainly, within the conservation community, and in particular at SeaWorld. And as we've said, we're proud to, to to be able to contribute at multiple points along the continuum. But to define it for you, you have you you have your animals that live in a zoological park that are um, that see and interact with people every day, and they have, you know, five-star uh, health care program because they see their doctor once a month or four times a year or something akin to what you or I experience as a, as a person living in, in modern society. And then you have their wild counterparts at the far end of the care continuum who never, ever see a person directly, but whose lives uh, are impacted by how we treat our environment, more appropriately, how we treat their environment. And in between... Uh, are all of those steps of management and uh, and uh, impact that we have on those animals, and some of that, some of those decisions are good, and some of those decisions are bad. Some of those impacts are good, some are bad. The story with the southern resident killer whales in J50 really highlights both, as Hendrik pointed out, the opportunities and the challenges for us as stewards of killer whales in this instance Absolutely. to provide for their care um, in the wild. Uh, but it's modeled on what's been done with bottlenose dolphins. So bottlenose dolphins in multiple locations around the U.S. and around the world, wild bottlenose dolphins um, do receive essentially routine health assessments because there are biologists like Dr. Randy Wells in Sarasota, Florida, who's been studying the bottlenose dolphins there for over 40 years. By catching them uh, once or twice a year, individual animals over the course of their lives, studying them every day out on the water, uh, and um, and he can monitor the health of that population physically, almost like we do at SeaWorld, not as regularly, but, but with a lot of detail. We don't we don't have that available to us today in the killer whale population in the Salish Sea or really anywhere in the world, but you can very much imagine a, way, a world where we could do that. And as we build this level of expertise that isn't about necessarily handling those wild whales, but it's about using technology and other means to assess the health of those individuals, we can make decisions on behalf of the health of those individuals, the wild animals, based on what we understand about the health of the individuals of our whales at SeaWorld. And we can push back then against uh, the deleterious impacts that we as a society are having on either them as animals or the environment in which they live. So yes. it's a continuum of care. We're all part of it. Um, and at SeaWorld, we're just proud uh, to, to, uh, to be able to, 
live and breathe it and, and try to move the needle on behalf of animal welfare and, and uh, conservation. At 24-7, absolutely 24-7. Again, 24/7. La- ladies right. and gents, this is these, you know, a large portion of your, of your SeaWorld spent dollars go to these programs, go to fund this research uh, and to keep the animals that you are interacting with um, happy and healthy. So, uh, so, you know, go to SeaWorld. That's, that's number one. Um, yeah, deleterious, deleterious actions. I would, I would say how we treat our environment, how we mistreat our environment. And I'm hoping that, that the research that SeaWorld in conjunction with so many other organizations is doing is going to help these animals in time, because, you know, as we know, plainly put, they're living in a sewer and, uh, and, and it's, it's just extraordinary. I mean, the, the, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, Killer Whale Research and Conservation Program, the NFWFKWRCP, um, supports efforts to advance knowledge and conservation of killer whales, which is exactly what we've been talking about, with a primary focus on, on activities that aid in the recovery of the so- southern resident killer whale population. This is exactly what, we ju- what we've just been, been discussing. But it focuses on following three key strategies Increasing prey availability. The southern resident population diet relies heavily on Pacific salmon with Chinook salmon as their primary diet. The program seeks projects that increase the health of the salmon runs that are important for killer whales. So it's not just, it's not just the whales themselves. It's 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 you know all the all the species that are around it that 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 help it survive. Improved habitat quality. The quality of the killer whale habitat is affected by many different stressors, including pollution and contaminants, and vessel traffic and noise. And then the third, uh-oh, wrong page. The third is, is a sentence that I have difficulty with. And so you can, we can talk about the first two, and then we can talk about strengthening management through game-changing research. The program will support research projects that address information gaps and catalyze effective management actions in key areas, such as improving our moderate monitoring of demographics and distribution, improving the health assessments of whales, and assessing the effectiveness and management of interventions. So these are three key areas, and we're going to discuss this last sentence because I'm just I'm trying to decipher it. But food, noise, pollution, and then, and then that last sentence, which is. Uh, which someone can decipher for me, <laughs> please. I, I can have a first go. Okay, if you like. So the uh, uh, yes, the the, the NIFRF program is uh, something that was uh, started as a partnership. Uh, so National Fish and Wildlife uh, Foundation uh, NIFRF uh, program was started as a partnership between NIFRF and uh, SeaWorld some years ago. Now uh, SeaWorld committed uh, ten million towards killer whale conservation research. And uh, so we partnered with NIFWIF so they could be, you know, the independent third party who would uh, uh, review, receive grants, review grants, and then, you know, disperse the money. Uh, so far to date, we have uh, contributed three and a half million. And then uh, there is there are matching funds required to, to be a recipient. And so it, the total impact, the total leverage of the project is of, of the, yeah, well, the program is, is about six and a half million. It's a lot of money. It's a huge resource, right? And when you talk to the biologists, they will tell you that they, there is a noticeable uh, field, and it, 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 a, a noticeable difference in the field. The people who are actually, I say on the ground, but it's on the water, um, with the whales, uh, the, the researchers, the conservation biologists feel like this program really is making a difference, which is something I was, I'm not only excited to hear, but very proud of. Um, the, um, the, the three main threats. Um, are like you said, are, are uh, pollution, habitat disturbance, and but above all, uh, hypothesis number one is, is food limitation. And you know, six and a half million dollars is a lot of money, but uh, still, the, there are more projects out there and more questions uh, being asked and what we can fund with that, uh, with that money. And so that's where the last sentence come in, comes in. This is strengthening managing through game-changing research. So the program prioritizes projects that actually. Uh, uh, that, that will give data or results that managers can use. It, it, it's, it's generating uh, manager-friendly data versus, uh, you know, main, uh, more pure conservation biology data or uh, academic data. Um, so the, uh, uh, the idea is that the, the program is a very practical program in the sense that it, it really enhances conservation, not just general knowledge about the southern resident killer whales. 
One example of uh, of that of this the, the, the game changing angle is uh, just this fall or this spring. I can recall now. We um, uh, we're in our fourth year of the program, and and uh, this fall we uh, hosted the uh, previous, current, and future uh, grantees of the program uh, here at CEO uh, San Diego uh, on our campus, and. Um, the, 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 the recipients are all scientists, right? They are all biologists, they're scientists. And we had them present, the, the point of the symposium, the point of bringing them all here, was that they would present to, not only to us, so we can do, see you know, who's, who's doing good science, but, uh, and, and, and to NIFWF, but uh, also to each other. So there's uh, real-time data sharing and opinion sharing instead of you know, having to wait for somebody to do the work and write the paper and then get it in, get it in press and hope that somebody reads it and understands it and comes to the right uh, conclusion. So the scientists get to talk to each other. But also we had invited and, and we had in the room um, <clears throat> managers, both NOAA managers, who actually get to hear from the scientists directly, mm-hmm. and also uh, legislative representatives from uh, uh, Washington and um, you know from the West Coast. And uh, so, so again, so these people can hear directly from the scientists, so there's not this two-year lag from learning that something is a problem uh, for uh, between you know the scientists knowing that something is a problem and the the, the legislators learning that this is a problem. That's that hey, was Carolyn. Carolyn if I can jump in here, I, I just want to underscore just how critically important this third step is because, for example, in the last few years, some of the research we've uncovered is that <clears throat> whale watching. You know, the the alternative to zoos, the critics of zoos would say, is to go out and observe these animals in the wild. Don't go to SeaWorld. Go in the wild. But what we're finding is that through this research and research like it, that uh, there is an impact by taking boats out there on these animals, on their ability to forage and their willingness to forage when they're surrounded by uh, whale watching boats, for example, or other boat traffic. And so when, when they talk about management, they're talking about giving tools and information to the legislators, the regulators at the state and federal levels so that they have a better understanding of the impacts that we've all been talking about today to better manage this species in the wild going forward. So it's a, it, it's, a, it's a complex step, but it's a critically important one that we do in real time so that we make better decisions ASAP than putting it off for five or 10 years because we don't have the data. Well, that was, that was, that was actually going to be my, my final question because we're, we're unfortunately running out of time because we could talk about the California Sea Otter Surrogacy Program. Um, uh, the Manatee Rescue and Rehabilitation Partnership. I mean, it's just insane. The fact that you are eliminating plastic plastic bags, polystyrene, and straws from SeaWorld, that, that, that just warms the cockles of my heart. But my last question was going to be, do you, does anyone on this call ever foresee a time, and the question's been answered, um, where we can say, look, we've got enough research now. We don't need to keep going on and on and on. F- f- we will but we have enough research now that we can go to the lawmakers and say, you've got to curtail whale watching. You've got to curtail fishing. You've got to curtail um, boating in this area. You've got to, you, we have to, you've got to do these things and, and essentially present them with enough facts and information and research and good science that they can't say no. So I'm so so the question's been answered. You you have legislators in the room, but um, I I because I, I'm hoping because all the research in the world is wonderful it, unless it, it's great, but it does nothing unless it is put into action with regard to helping this species survive. And and so I mean that's that I'm I'm thrilled to hear. But are we? I mean, do we have do we have the ear of lawmakers up in the in, in the Pacific Northwest and the Pacific Northeast? I mean the the Atlantic Northeast. <laughs> I get my oceans confused. Are we are we are we are we actively kind of boots I, I, on the ground? I, I, yes, I, this is Chris. I, I I would say I would say yes. Uh, in so much as you can have them focus on any one thing, but the things that we are most passionate about, the conservation of of animals and good policies that allow us to share those spaces with the animals, uh, particularly the ones that live right where we live, um, I I think we have, uh, I'm optimistic 
about decisions being made on behalf of animals in the wild so that we can we can still reduce uh, the impact that humans as a species have on their environments and on those animals. And in so much as we have um, many lawmakers who are very focused on these issues and we have collectively, both at SeaWorld and, and within the, the zoo and conservation community, um, a lot of very smart people who are working closely with those legislators uh, to help make good policy as challenging as that is, um, and rules and otherwise, both at the local level and at the federal level on behalf of animals. I'm very optimistic about it. Having said that, um, decisions are made quickly, and you, we, none of us can rest on our laurels. We have to do more and more of it. And um, inviting folks to see world, particularly inviting folks into these scientific discussions, uh, where you have applied conservation as the topic, um, is um, is a critical step. And uh, the NIFWF meeting was was one we were proud of. We had a meeting about manatees and red tides in, in Florida last year as well, uh, so that you can have your government agencies, um, your animal conservation professionals, your zoological professionals, all in the room together, um, uh, helping each other make good decisions on behalf of animals. That's the key phrase, isn't it? Applied conservation. That's that's really that's, 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 right. that's really where it what what it all boils down to. What all the research boils down to. Okay. Well, I just my goodness. Thank you, Tony, for letting us go over a little because I know you did. Thank you. Uh, I oh, will both of you come on again, please. <laughs> If we can wrangle the two of you together at the same time, yes, say yes. Just say it. You know what? I'm going to say yes for you. All right. Doctor, <laughs> whether you want to or not, thank you so much, Dr. Hendrik Nolans, uh, Vice President of Animal Health and Welfare of SeaWorld Bush Gardens Parks, and Dr. Christopher Dold, Chief Zoological Officer of of thank you well my 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 absolutely my honor and pleasure and thanks for making it making it um simple really and and truly understandable for all of us because to understand what just it just the singular entity of SeaWorld and 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 the the, the tentacles the octopus-like tentacles that it has in so many conservation and preservation efforts. It's really extraordinary. So I cannot uh, admonish my, my listeners enough. Go to SeaWorld and support the planet. Essentially, that's, that's the circle. Go to SeaWorld, save the planet. <laughs> that's, that's basically it. Um, thank you again so much for coming on. You are part of my, my, my love affair with SeaWorld, and I look forward, hopefully, to meeting both of you when I come down on the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of July, coming up so quickly, um, to help with um, re res um, release efforts uh, with, hopefully, some of, the, some of the animals that you are in the process of rehabilitating. So I can't, I can't wait to see both of you. Um, Gray Stafford, my, yeah. my, my alpha and omega, thank you so much for being on this call. You uh, bet. I just would just remind people that when they're when they call for the end of zoos and aquariums, they're calling for the end of people like Chris and Hendrick with their expertise, their passion and and the the skills necessary to not only take care of animals in zoos, but to study and preserve the animals in the wild. So it's a it's a much bigger cause. And we've got to support our zoos. And well, when they call for the end of zoos and aquariums, they're calling for the end of humanity, essentially. I mean, let's just let's just take it to that final step, because when the animals go, we go. It's as simple as that. And uh, again, yeah. so gentlemen, thank you. Um, and will you please come on again, both of you? Absolutely. Love thank you. you very much, Carolyn. Okay. <laughs> well, believe me, it's my honor. This this show was 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 I think one of the best we've ever done. Um, listeners, uh, go to SeaWorld if you can, and if you can't. Just, just invest in their programs. Just send a couple of dollars. Seriously, I know it's, I know it's, I know it's not for profit, but just send a couple of dollars anyway, because the work that they are doing is truly extraordinary. Contribute to the five hundred one c three if you are able to. Um, we will be back in two weeks with another episode of Animal Magnetism. Until then, I admonish everyone to always uh, cultivate the preservationist heart because it will, it will never lead you astray in everything that you do. Uh, thank you again to Tony Sweet, my, uh, my incredible engineer, my other executive producer. 
Gray Stafford, again, uh, the folks at SeaWorld really need you to, um, to uh, patronize their establishments because what they're doing is, is nothing short of, of miracles every day. So I will see you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to Animal Magnetism. I am your host, Carolyn Hennessy, and uh, uh, goodbye.